1: Hey guys! Hi Matt. Welcome back to the Curtisiders. Thank you, Stuart. I I was going to say that, but uh, thank you for saying that for me. You're uh, I'm I'm glad you can make it tonight, Stuart. And your dog, which the audience may or may not hear throughout the show.
2: Several times.
1: Several times. Maybe a few mic gongs thrown in for good measure. <laughs> it's always a pleasure. Dog on it. <laughs> tonight on the show uh, we have Dr. Peter Atia, and we talk about lifespan and health span and some tips on improving your lifespan and health span but before we get into that and we introduce our wonderful guest host I wanted Paul to tell the audience Paul what do, what is it that we do on this show why I've asked you this before Paul why are we here why
2: why, why are we doing <laughs> tell this tell me
1: what, what is, is life I in, yeah Paul tell me what's the meaning of life
2: I you know and I'd love to but for some emotional tell you. wellness <laughs> god so this We are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring in clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And as the great Dr. Wado alludes to, I have never more been acutely aware of my own impending death. So having said that, probably you can skip past the first 10 minutes if you want to. I forgive you. We're all ideally going to die suddenly is my take home point from this, but maybe not. But just the Grim Reaper is waiting for us in four different ways. So or I don't know. Listen or don't. It doesn't. It does. Bahala.
0: Our, our our graph has a negative slope of one. <laughs>
1: and to introduce our wonderful returning guest dr elena gibson who helps uh helped us with the production of this episode elena thank you for coming back
3: yeah happy to be here
1: thank you for not being scared off by all your previous curbsiders experiences
3: (laughs) keeps life interesting so right it was a really good episode
1: yeah, so tell the audience, uh, what have you been up to? What's the show about tonight? You know, any other, anything else you want to bring up?
3: So I, I'm actually going to a concert tonight. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, Kishibashi. Very good.
2: Oh, he's so fun. That'll be great. Yeah,
3: yeah, he's on tour. So if anyone hasn't checked him out, check him out. Um, otherwise, I'm an internal medicine intern. And the show today was Dr. Peter Atia. Talks a lot about longevity, health, health span and lifespan go into that and how to really stretch out longevity. Talk a lot about you know four common types of death, and then also five dietary groups to address how nutrition affects our longevity in life, uh, kind of going over exercises that are most helpful and how to think about this in a clinical setting.
2: Dr. Peter Atia is a physician focusing on the applied science of longevity. His practice applies nutritional biochemistry, exercise physiology, sleep physiology, meditation, lipidology, pharmacology, and endocrinology to oh increase gosh. lifespan, meaning how long you live, while simultaneously improving health span, how well you live. Peter earned his M.D. from Stanford University and holds a bachelor of science in mechanical engineering and applied mathematics. He trained for five years at the Johns Hopkins Hospital in general surgery, where he's a recipient of several prestigious awards, including Resident of the Year and the author of A Comprehensive Review of General Surgery. He spent two years at the National Institutes of Health as a surgical oncology fellow at the National Cancer Institute, where his research focused on immune-based therapies for cancer. He has since been mentored by some of the most experienced and innovative lipidologists, endocrinologists, gynecologists, sleep physiologists, and longevity scientists in the United States and Canada. Peter's interests in longevity span all facets, from the molecular basis of aging, to metabolic disease, to training to be the fittest 100-year-old to the role of early childhood trauma plays in adult life. His podcast, The Drive, focuses on all these topics and more. And it is with pleasure that we now present Dr. Peter Atiyah.
1: So we'll start, Peter. The first question I wanted to ask you, as I, as I was mentioning in pre-recording, you have a very unique practice. So how do you even explain to people what you do uh, when they ask you, like if you're just meeting someone for the first time?
4: Well, truthfully, and I'm not making this up, if I meet someone at a party or wherever and they ask me what I do, I just, I say I'm a shepherd or a race car driver because those are two things I like to be able to BS my way through. And I don't want to have to talk about what I do because I don't, there is no very concise way to say it. You know, if you're a neurologist, you can say I'm a neurologist, but I don't like the word longevity. And I definitely don't want to say I'm a doctor who's interested in longevity because that just the the amount of snake oil that starts to seep off you becomes so unbearable. So truthfully, I mean, it sounds awful, but 19 times out of 20, I can get away with being a shepherd or a race car driver and I don't have to talk about what I do at all.
2: So this is a different question than I intended to ask. But um, so what the next line is got to be like shepherd. So how... How does that work out for you? And sort of how, where, where do you go with that? Because I am now fascinated by this. This is my new, this is much more interesting than the question I had.
4: Yeah, how, I, know. Does, I mean, I think I just, I'm I'm really interested in, in sheep. And I think <laughs> that it's, I, I, look, I just, I don't think people give enough attention to mm. sheep right now. And there's, you know, the sheep are going through a very challenging time. Um, the herds are becoming much more clicky. And <laughs> I think that there's an opportunity to Bring a sense of community back to the sheep community, and I, I I feel you know uniquely situated to do that in Southern California. So you
1: spend a lot, a lot of the time there. by yourself in the corner at parties uh, after that response,
4: <laughs> I imagine. It's so fantastic to watch people just walk away when you say that, and uh, or if they go down the race car driving path, I can talk my way through that because I that happens to be one of my obsessions anyway. So
1: right, I, I'm
2: here to tell you ten times out of ten, I would be. I would do shepherd and then I would, you'd would be pinned in a corner because I would have a lot of questions about <laughs> shepherding. Yes. Yeah. yeah it would backfire, <laughs> but it at least fail.
4: I wouldn't, I wouldn't be a snake oil shepherd. That's, <laughs> sure. So fair.
0: unless it's you're like shepherding him. snakes. That's, that's a good point,
4: but I, I do restrict it to sheep. Um, <laughs> I, but you know, a couple rams in there as well, but
1: Peter Stewart's reminding me, I forgot to give my Stewart disclaimer. Uh, I apologize in advance for his behavior. Any bad puns? It's just, we, he's incorrigible. i take it. I'll yeah. take it.
0: <laughs> uh,
1: Stuart, did you want to ask a question?
0: You, you know, I, I, I did. So reading through your blog, I found this very impressive entry from 2012. Um, I, I don't know if you can see that picture. It says the straight dope on cholesterol part five. There is a picture of earth, Mars, Venus, and the moon. And I, I, I I'm kind of stunned. What does this have to do with cholesterol? <laughs> Well,
4: that was a nine part series that I wrote in 2012 and 2013, and part five dealt with the question of particle size. So Ah. uh, the jugular question posed is particle for particle, is a small particle more atherogenic than a large particle? And that post tackled that question.
0: Uh, Okay, because I couldn't find any mention of Venus and I was very upset. (laughs)
1: Okay. Elena, did you want to ask Peter anything?
3: Yeah. So first, why not al- alpacas? I heard they're a lot easier than sheep. But also, uh, what's the best advice you've received in your career?
4: Um, Boy, it's, it's sort of, I don't know, it's kind of cliche, but I've, the, the hardest decision I ever made in my career was to leave residency after five years. Um which is I mean at, at Hopkins, that was an unheard of maneuver um you know when you 're that far in it 's it 's just a given that you 're going to you know finish and 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 it 's I was doing well i mean i I loved surgery and i loved I loved Hopkins I just loved everything about what I was doing in a sense, but there was an itch that wasn 't being scratched and when I started really toying with this idea of leaving it. It was impossible to explain to anybody, but there was an internist, um, actually, I'm sorry, an anesthesiologist who also co-managed the ICU, who was just an amazing guy named Peter Pronovost, quite a famous guy in his own right, by the way. You probably have heard his name. He's certainly one of the um, leading advocates for patient safety. And, um, you know, Peter was just, you know, he gave me a Joseph Campbell book and basically said, you got to follow your own bliss. Um, and at the time, my bliss just couldn't fully be met as a surgeon. So he said, you got to go and do something else if that's what you got to do and and you'll be great and that'll be fine. And don't listen to what anybody has to say about it. And, and there was, a, I mean, an unbelievable amount of you're crazy. This is the biggest mistake you'll ever make. How could you turn your back on this? Blah, 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 blah. Um, but you know, I, and I, when I left to be clear, I left medicine. Like I, I mean, I went to work for a consulting firm called McKinsey and company. Um, and I worked in finance for a couple of years, um, And I I really needed to scratch my problem-solving sort of quantitative itch that was not being scratched in clinical medicine.
1: Wow.
3: I think it's good to hear that. You know, I've had a few people I know who have changed their career at some point in medicine, and it's always hard or you feel like no one else is doing it, no one else has done it. I guess people just don't talk about it as often within medicine, I think.
4: Well, there's, there's definitely a sunk cost in medicine. Like we invest, you know, by the time I'd left medicine, I had 10 years in it between medical school and residency. And that's a lot. But Peter was also very wise in pointing out something to me, which is, you know, at the time, I don't even remember how old I was. We call it 33. And he said, you know, Peter, you're going to be 50 one way or the other, hopefully, right? Barring some disaster, you're going to be 50. The question is, do you want to be doing this when you're 50 or do you want to be doing something else when you're 50? And if you think you want to be doing something else when you're 50, why does the last 10 years factor into that decision? I mean, it is such a, again, in economics, we use these terms, sunk cost fallacies, to explain that. Um, You know, why would you throw more money in an investment that you've already deemed as bad because you've spent money in the past? It just doesn't make any sense. But I think people too often... To adhere to sunk cost fallacies in
0: life. Yeah, absolutely. When when you're saying the name Peter, you're not talking a third person, are you?
4: No, sorry, I'm referring <laughs> to Peter Pronovost, who okay. is the okay. uh, this amazing guy who was
0: giving me such great advice. I, I was just making sure that you weren't Stuart, your own your own mentor.
1: Stewart 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 drifts in and out of the conversation. Um, <laughs> Peter, uh, Peter, I wanted to ask you. We we often like. Ask our guests for book recommendations, and I—I I think some of our my co-hosts actually have recommendations for the audience about various things for for tonight. But I want to ask you: Is there a specific book? And it doesn't have to be medical related. Just like it, it can be something you've read recently, or just like a favorite book, something that you really think people should read or check out.
4: Well, certainly one of my favorite books. Uh, that there were two books in medical school. I mean, there were two books I read between medical school and college over and over and over again, and. I think I've told the story on at least one podcast, but I wouldn't date someone unless she read these books. That was sort of a prerequisite to dating um, because I felt like they both captured a part of me that was so weird, but so much who I was that without it, it didn't matter. And so the, the two books were Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman, which of course is the autobiography of Richard Feynman and The Transformed Cell which is Steve Rosenberg's account of the early days of immunotherapy. Steve was probably the most important mentor I ever had scientifically. I ultimately did a postdoc with him at the National Cancer Institute in immunotherapy. And to this day, I don't, well, as you guys know, I, I, I don't think the practice of clinical medicine really teaches critical thinking scientifically. I think that unfortunately has to be learned in a laboratory. And since I didn't do a PhD um, I think the the combination of at least having a technical background in science and, um, you know, so through mathematics and engineering, coupled with the time I spent at the NIH in medical school and then during the postdoc were, were just invaluable. More recently, I would say, um, Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me is just one of the most brilliant books I've read, probably among the most gifted books, um, I've given out, uh, and it's really the story of cognitive dissonance and how our mental models can fool us and how we're all susceptible to, um, you know, these, these incredible constructs. Um, I, I have many more that I could go into, but I think for the sake of time, I'll, I'll limit yeah. it to those. Th- yeah.
1: Uh, any, any of, to any of my co-hosts, do any of you want to give recommendations or want to just move on? I mean, I think we should we got. We, I think we should definitely pay mind to our time, so we have enough time to get into the health span stuff that we're going to talk about here. Stuart, do you? Uh, can you contain um, yourself? <laughs> yes, I, I can
0: certainly contain myself. I will hold off because it's it's just it's so much less poignant than those books. <laughs>
1: Okay, it's yeah, it's it's a jarring transition from uh what Peter just said <laughs>
2: <laughs> to Stuart's sock puppet Twitter account. Yes. Yeah, it's it's,
1: it's, it's,
0: it's not mine. It's not mine. I don't know who did it, but it's I think it's hilarious.
1: Oh man. Elena, would you oh. would you start us off with a a fake case from Cashlack uh to bring us into the discussion?
3: I would love to. Okay, so you're at Cashlack Memorial. You're seeing Bob and Lisa, a couple in their early 40s. Bob's family has a strong history of diabetes, obesity, and heart disease in the fifth or sixth decade. His parents died before age 70 years old. Lisa's parents are relatively healthy in their early 70s. Her paternal grandmother died of ovarian cancer at age 102 and had lived independently until age 98. Her three other grandparents lived into their late 80s or early 90s. Bob and Lisa each want to know how to optimize their longevity. So can you start by defining lifespan and health span and how you think about those?
4: Sure. I think about um four types of death. So the first type of death is the one that everybody kind of understands intuitively. It's the cardiopulmonary, cardiorespiratory, even brain death in certain situations. It's the it's what I call death certificate death. So that's the one when you it all you, you get buried for that one. Um that's the one that kicks your life insurance in. Um, longevity, therefore, is made up of these two pieces: lifespan and health span. Lifespan is the duration of that life. Lifespan is the time until type one death occurs. So, type one death, which is that one I just described, when that occurs, that fixes your lifespan. So um, lifespan is therefore quite binary. Um, it is absolute. And, uh, there's, you know, not much ambiguity about it. Conversely, health span is made up of three types of death that I've defined as uh, very creatively types two, three, and four death. Um, my editor, by the way, hates this By the time the book comes out. (laughs) She's like, you can't be talking about death so much. Um, so it's a cognitive, it's a cognitive death, which is type two type three is the death of the exoskeleton, sort of a physical death. And then type four is an emotional death. So the cognitive decline or cognitive death is an erosion of cognition, which is processing speed, memory, both short and long-term and executive function. The, and, and, and as you'll see with types three and four death, all of these health span type deaths are unlike type one. They are not binary right? They are not digital. They're analog. They're relative. They slide. And two people can have very different definitions of that. Um, so one person's decline is another person's baseline. The type three one is the physical exoskeleton. So that's the loss of muscle mass, the loss of bone density, the, um, you know, chronic pain, inability to carry out the activities that matter most to you. And again, very relative for me, someone who's been physically active his whole life Whose life revolves around being active, you know. I have a very high bar for what it means to be alive with respect to type three. And then the fourth one is the emotional one, which probably gets the least attention in medicine. And it's not mental health, right? Like that's mental health. I put in the category of, you know, we have a code that we define a type of mental illness with. I'm, I'm talking about. The practice of mindfulness, the ability to be present, the ability to minimize suffering, the ability to practice stoicism, the ability to practice relational living, basically the ability to minimize your own suffering, which is, I mean, I have a PhD in suffering. So um, that's something that means a lot to me. And I think a lot about how the other things don't matter, right? If you can extend the duration of your life, preserve your cognition and preserve your body, but you're unhappy, it's absolutely counterproductive. So longevity is the practice of optimizing all four of those and they're um quite interdependent they are not mutually exclusive it's not a zero-sum game you don't have to pick i, well, I want all of my energy to be in living longer but at a lower quality or vice versa
1: Stuart, was that your dog <laughs> uh
0: yeah I, i'm i'm meeting my mic i'm so sorry <laughs>
1: Oh wonderful. Um Peter, I wanted to Don't make
4: me repeat that whole thing. No, 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 <laughs> no.
1: No, no. We'll keep the dog in there. I I we'll we'll definitely keep that in there.
3: No. Sounded frightening.
1: Yeah. So you were you were on the emotional you were on the emotional health thing. I, I, I have a I have a follow-up question, but I'm I'm not sure sh- I kind of lost track if you were fully done your point or not, or if the dog if the dog <laughs> uh yeah. <laughs>
4: No, I'm sorry. Timing, actually, I was 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 perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Punctuation. It was
1: punctuation. I, Peter, when when I've heard you talk about this, I thought this was a just kind of a wonderful concept where you talk about with someone's lifespan, they they might live to 105, but there might be a long period of morbidity at the end of the life, like the long tail. Can you talk about the long tail concept and what? what's the goal with this, all this, all these things that you do that we're going to start to talk about in a little bit. What, what is the main goal with like how you live, how your life ends?
4: I mean, I see it as having three pieces, right? The first is I do believe in extending lifespan. I do think that, you know, I've never met anybody who at the end of their life was like, Oh God, I'm so happy to be done with this. Um, you might say that if you're suffering, I mean, it's I've certainly, you know, I, spend so much time around oncology patients that obviously I can relate to the notion of this suffering is unbearable. I'm ready to be done with it, but I've never met somebody who's not suffering say, you know, I'm ready to be done with this. If they're suffering emotionally, they're ready to be done with life. We call that suicide or parasuicide. Um, so optionality matters. And my view is if, if, if there's 10 to 15 years of additional lifespan you can have by investing very heavily in the mitigation and reduction of chronic disease because remember we die we die in pretty predictable ways like there's not a lot of mystery about how our species dies in fact if you don't smoke and you're not suicidal there's about an 85 to 90% chance you're going to die from four things which we know is true as god made little green apples so you know there are clear strategies to delay the onset of those things so that's one thing how do you add duration to lifespan how do you delay type 1 When it comes to type two, three, four, I think there are really two fundamental goals. The first is to reduce the inevitable decline of the age-induced onset of them. So type two and three are heavily influenced by age. And we generally peak, I mean, cognitively and physically, we peak in our 20s or 30s. Um, we, most of the, for most people remain relatively flat until our forties, but then we begin a relatively slow decline that becomes quite precipitous in the seventh decade. And frankly, by the eighth decade, most people have reached the halfway point of their existence, meaning they're functioning at about 50% of their cognitive and physical prowess for the last decade of their life, which gets to your question. If you are at the 50% mark with a decade to go, that is a really long dragged out piece of morbidity. And that's the third goal is how do you compress that period of morbidity? So if you think about what this longevity curve looks like, in fact, the logo of my uh, podcast is two longevity curves, the standard one, which has this, you know, long gradual drooping down, and then something that approximates more of a squared function, the perfect longevity curve would be a rectangle right? It would just go straight out and kaput, just drop.
1: (laughs) Die in your sleep. Yeah. No morbidity. You just, yeah, that's right. Okay. Yeah. That's the dream, right?
3: (laughs) For those people who haven't seen the curve, could you describe what's on the X and Y axis?
4: Yeah. The X axis is time and the Y axis is quality of those other metrics, the health span metrics. So the 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 x axis is lifespan, the y axis is health span. So um, the the curve starts at the you know zero lifespan mark when you're born with you know reasonable health span, tends to you know go up a little bit and then start to decline, starts to come down, and then it you die when it crosses the x axis, but it's doing so in a curved manner. And the idea is if you picture this thing starting at the left, going to the right, you want to grab that curve and pull it up and to the right. Uh, I misspoke, by the way. It starts at the left. You want to pull it up and to the right. That's what I mean by squaring the longevity curve. Um, and I don't think I've coined that term. I'm sure someone else has used that term before me to square the longevity curve. But if not, I'll take credit for it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> sure. We'll, get, we'll give you credit. We, I think we have the authority to do that. I wanted to, yeah. And, and so we wanted to, to ask you about some of the ways that you think this can be done. I mean, do we, how much do we know about this? And, and we, I think get, getting into some of the ways that this can be done. So where do you start to approach this from? Like you, you have a practice and uh, I imagine you're coaching your patients through this a lot. I think that's why a lot of people come to see you, both performance and for improving their health span. So where do you start?
4: it starts by goals, right? You know, you sort of have to understand what somebody wants and they have to have the motivation to do this. This is not easy. Um, I don't have a pill. It's not like I've got some secret that nobody's heard of. And, um, and it's amazing. Sometimes people really do believe that they sort of three months into the practice, they've made none of the changes we've discussed and they're seeing no improvements and they're sort of frustrated and they, and they, you basically get it out of them that they thought I had some special pill. Um, and so the first thing which really you do before they become patients right you're doing this during the interviewing process to become a patient is teasing out do they have the motivation do they have something that they can anchor and tether to so um i i believe there has to be a reason to want to live longer and live better because it is it, it is a it's a real challenge um for me that's what brought me back to medicine was when i was in my mid 30s my daughter was born And that was a total wake up call. Um, that was the realization that, you know, my life is great, but it's infinitely better with her in it. And if I have the privilege of having more kids and grandkids and great grandkids, I mean, that's just, that's a bliss I've never experienced. So, um, how about I figure out a way to be younger and healthier for as long as possible? Um, I used to, and I actually got away from this. I feel like I need to get back to it. I used to actually make my patients write down on a piece of paper, why do you want to live longer? And you have to carry that piece of paper with you around in your wallet. Hmm. So if you, if you can't establish that degree of motivation, um, if they can't be tethered to it, another exercise I like to do is you write down the person's age, the age of their children, if they have children, and then you just start going out by decade. So
0: there's a lot of dogs in your world. I notice. <laughs>
1: Stuart's like Doctor Doolittle. I, I
0: don't know why. What's going on out there? I I will keep my mic on mute until I have <laughs> until I have a space to ask questions. <laughs>
1: okay, Stuart. all right, Herb a so, professional
4: podcast here. <laughs> so 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 so, if you take somebody who's like you know, uh, well, let's use one of you guys as an example. Any of you guys have kids yet?
1: I I do. <laughs> I have four. I have four children. Stewart has five, but he's muted now, so we'll go with. Him. I have yeah, five. Stuart, kids, Stuart, yeah.
4: Stewart's in the penalty box. Yeah. So. <laughs> So how, yeah. your kids, are you have four kids. How old are you?
1: I, I am 37.
4: You're 37. Your kids are how old?
1: My kids are the be- between the ages of three and eight.
4: Okay, so I'm just going to assume eight to three. Okay, so we would map this out. We'd go 47, 57, 67, 77, 87, out to 97. And we add decades to your kids, 18, 28, 38, 48, 58, et cetera, 13, You know, we, we literally would draw all this out on a whiteboard and we would start to then draw out when we believe they will have kids and when their kids will have kids. Mm -hmm. And what we basically show you in a matter of like seven minutes is that living an extra decade is the difference between you knowing and not knowing an entire generation of your lineage. It's the difference between, you know, and, and, and being healthy for the last 20 years of your life, as opposed to being reclusive is the difference between you teaching those kids things that matter to you whether it's you know how to fish how to pick stocks how to you know play cards you know these things that we all take for granted today they're going to go away if we don't fight uh you know tooth and nail to preserve them and so for you to see that for you to actually be able to put a practical window around that I think becomes quite powerful
2: yes Agreed. i agree may- and I may be um, being too literal with a conceptual framework, um, or hopefully maybe setting us up for the next conversation, but do you ever run into patients where their goals are at odds with longevity? And by that, I mean, I, I'm assuming there are certain sacrifices you have to make in order to, to extend long, that longevity. So how often do you run into someone where it's more important to maintain things that are personally important to them at the expense of of living longer, of life? Like like eating unhealthy? Correct.
4: Well, I was going to take it in a different direction. I was going to take it in a different direction, which is you asked, someone made the point earlier about introducing me as someone who deals with performance and longevity, and I was going to correct you, but I didn't think it was worth it. But (laughs) I actually don't work, for example, with professional athletes who are still playing because that actually is at odds with longevity, right? There is nothing about trying to be the leading wide receiver in the NFL that is congruent with living longer. Now, you know, I work with plenty of people who have retired from doing that, but Um, the reality of it is you do have to pick your master. You do have to optimize around something. Now, what you're asking is a slightly different question, which really comes down to an appreciation of, you know, what, what needs to be done. Um, so when people come in and say, look, I want to, I want all those things you're talking about, Peter. I just don't want to change the way I eat, sleep, (laughs) exercise, or manage distress. But other than that, I absolutely want it. Well, that's, you know, I, then I say you're detached from reality.
0: You mean metformin is not going to fix that? <laughs> we can talk about metformin if you like.
4: <laughs> I mean, look, there's no more potent drug that's ever been developed than sleep, exercise, and nutrition. You know, fasting, exercise, um, you know, correct sleep management of hypercortisolemia. I mean, the big four pillars of how you make people live longer don't involve a drug. And and I believe me, I am I'm as pro drug as they come. I mean, my view is. This is the hardest problem biology has ever put in front of us, which is trying to defy it. And therefore, you want every single tool in the toolkit. So I I need to know every single thing about every single drug, every supplement, every hormone, every nutritional tactic, every exercise, piece of physiology. Um, I want to have the biggest toolbox, and I want to know exactly how every tool works. But when
0: the lifestyle tools are the harder tools to implement, for sure. Yeah. just a a question about the patients that you see, what around what age range are your patients exactly? I'd think the median age is about forty.
4: The range is twenty eight to seventy something twenty eight to
0: seventy two maybe. okay yeah, that that was my next follow-up question
1: because you need to you need to intervene. I guess the earlier you intervene, it, it probably the the better the outcome is going to be in this if if you can get someone bought in at age twenty eight versus someone at age seventy who hasn't taken care of themselves uh, up until that point. But what it's
4: and- it's a perfect linear optimization problem because you're absolutely right. The earlier you start, the more benefits you can get. But the later you start, the more motivation the patient typically has. So here's an example, right? When is the optimal time to start saving for retirement? Well, it's the minute you finish college, right? The problem is most people, when they finish college, like the thought of actually investing and taking 20% of what they earn and putting it aside, it's so hard. So usually what happens is you got to get into your 40s before you have this wake up call, which is, wait a minute. I'm I'm killing myself working here. I don't want to do this forever. I actually have a little bit more disposable income. I probably ought to start saving it. Um and yeah, the saddest thing that I see is the people who show up at the end of their life, you know, they're decrepit in their 70s and they realize I want to do something about it. And and the reality is it's hard to do a lot at that point.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, we have Bob and Lisa, right? They're they are a fake couple in their 40s and it sounds like Bob's Bob's family has a lot of metabolic disease, heart disease, and uh, Lisa has a pretty healthy family. It seems like she has long lifespan. Uh, maybe no matter what she does, I want to get into some of the specifics. You, you mentioned sleep. You mentioned exercise. Let's let's talk about exercise and like what specific kind of exercise do you think is important, um, and and how does that tie in with what you tell patients?
4: Well, we have a framework in the practice around exercise, which is this idea of the centenarian Olympics. So I've always been competitive as an athlete my whole life. And um, so from the age of 13 till the age of 42, I was always maniacally focused on some sport. Now, I don't want to represent for a moment that I was ever good at anything. I just, I acted like I was, right? Like I would, you know, I'm at the master's races. I'm trying to set the local city record that nobody cares about except me. You know, I was just super competitive with my training and with my performance in cycling, swimming, boxing, whatever it is I did. And when I hung up the bike, which was the last of the sports I was doing um, around my 42nd birthday... I realized for the first time in my life, I didn't have a sport to pursue. So I was just exercising like most people do for the sake of exercising. And I pretty quickly figured out that that was hard to do. I also then realized, and this was actually something I realized at the funeral of a friend's parent, that um, there's a sport I have neglected to train for, which is the decathlon of life at the end. You know, what does it mean? to be able to put your luggage above your you know, head at the airplane when you're 70? What does it mean to be able to pick up your grandkid when they come sprinting towards you when you're 82? What does it mean to do X, Y, and Z? And I listed out 18 different things that I wanted to be able to do as a 100-year-old. And sort of metaphorically, will I make it to 100? Probably not, but I wanna, I'm going to plan on it and our training then is all based around that so there are really two important goals of exercise there are the metabolic benefits of exercise production of bdnf which is the single most potent tool we have to ward off dementia the insulin sensitivity of the muscle which makes the muscle the most important organ for glucose disposal and the maintenance of normal glucose and insulin and then we have the structural benefits so exercise for us is divided into four components there's a foundation of stability and then there are these there's a 3 legged table that sort of sits on it which is strength aerobic efficiency or mitochondrial efficiency and then anaerobic performance and i mean it would take another hour to go through it which i won't do but Mm -hmm. we have a very detailed framework for how we approach exercise within that structure
1: so you're not just like telling your patients, uh, walk a certain, you know, exercise a certain number of minutes per week. You're prescribing specific strength training exercises and maybe aerobic exercises. Is it it's some so combination? Specific,
4: it would be it would okay. you'd find it offensive okay. yeah, it's, it's it's i mean we've created we've created, doubt an, enti- it. <laughs> we've created an, an entire video curriculum inside our practice which basically goes back to training people through a, a methodology known as dynamic neuromuscular stabilization so basically undoing the damage that starts for most people when they're about four or five years old that completely disconnects us from the way we evolve to move so most people have myself included um get through life with just deplorable movement patterns. And if you go back and watch the development of a child during the first two years, you see that there are a handful of really important developmental milestones that every normal child goes through. And when you shed them, you start applying load inappropriately, and therefore you're applying inappropriate forces Anytime you're applying force to the outside world or the outside world is applying force to you, those, those forces are escaping into joints, which is exactly where you don't want them to. So, you know, our belief is there's no such thing as acute injuries. There are simply acute symptoms on chronic instabilities. Mm -hmm. And our goal is to basically fix all of these things. Um, And then we have prescriptions around all of these things. So yeah, for example, using aerobic, it's not just go and do some aerobic nonsense, it's we're training you exactly at a specific energy system, which is the peak mitochondrial efficiency defined by a lactate level between about 1.7 and 1.9 millimolars. And we want our patients spending a minimum of three hours a week at that level of exertion until they acclimate to it. And then we go further and further.
1: Okay. So this is, this is getting, there's blood work involved and, and that sort of thing. But oh yeah. But the this is not something I'll be prescribing anytime soon. But the in in, I'm in in broad strokes, you're talking about how my three year old can uh, go down in a perfect squat with her heels on the floor and read a book for five minutes without breaking a sweat, while me, like I can I can sit in that position for if I'm lucky to get into that position, it's like five seconds, and I'm like everything hurts. That um, <laughs> part of it, but that's, that
4: just that just speaks to the mobility she advantage yeah. advantage she has over you. It doesn't speak to the stability advantage. This the stability, stability advantage is when she stands up, uh-huh. her belly is probably stuck out like a Buddha, <laughs> and that's right. because of how strong she is and how much concentric interabdominal force she's able to generate and how her pelvic floor and her diaphragm are fully engaged. When you do it. None of that's the case. And that's why you hurt your back if you're loaded in that position. Whereas she can probably pick up a third of her body weight from that position without any undue stress on her body. Hmm. Never thought about that.
3: Have we always, I guess, what leads to that decline or...
4: Yeah. I mean, probably the biggest culprit. I mean, there are many, I think uh, w- one of the things that we do, we've all done it. I've certainly done it with my kids is we tend to push them a little too quickly. We try to get them to sit up before they're ready to sit up. And before they can stabilize, we put them in these goofy little Bobby chairs before they're ready to walk. We put them in walkers. We put them in shoes too early. So they don't really learn how to use the intramusculature, you know, within their feet. Um, the biggest insult almost unquestionably comes with school when they start to sit. So, there's really nothing evolutionarily natural about sitting, um, you know, sitting in the position we do in chairs. So all of these things, and frankly, just the total lack of activity that exists in our life today. Um, so it's 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 really a gradual set of insults that that kick in and and unfortunately, Nobody really trains us how to do these things. So then, on top of that, even the people like me who gravitated towards exercising, we end up doing it, but we do it slightly incorrectly. We do it with a slightly incorrect pattern of movement, and when you do that under load, you create repetitive strain injury. Now so, I feel guilty for sitting.
1: So I want <laughs> to. I I want to move us on. It's okay,
4: I'm I'm sitting right now as well. So, <laughs> <you know. laughs>
1: so to to recap a little bit here, the and we we talked about you you talked about sleep being important. We talked about exercise being important and trying to get back to some of the more natural movements and trying to unlearn some of the bad habits we've learned. The way that we start to move as we're as we're growing up. Um, I guess to, to the my last question to before we leave this topic and go on to what I want to talk about would be sort of the nutrition piece of this and some of the pharmaceutical or supplements. Um. Would be, is there any resource, like any any book or something that our that if our audience is interested in learning more about this balance stuff that and the the fit exercise stuff we were just talking about that, that you would point them to as just a starting point?
4: I mean, I hate being the idiot who says this, but I mean that's the reason I'm writing the book I'm writing. Okay. You know, no, that's it's, it's it's to basically come up with the the subtitle of my book is The Science and Art of Longevity, because you know, this is a longer discussion, but Obviously, longevity is not something that is ever going to be amenable to the gold standards of what I've described as medicine 2.0, where you have nice, clean questions that are amenable to uh, double blinded placebo random control trials. Um, we don't have that in longevity. So, our, the, 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 really, the thesis of this book is that you need a strategy to approach longevity, and that strategy is anything but perfect. It relies on indirect pieces of evidence. And it's the assimilation of that information that is the art of a science. Mm. It's taking what is scientifically known that is imperfect, because, for example, if you want to look at well-controlled studies of longevity, they're all done in the species of uninterest. They're not done in humans.
1: Right. Like yeast cells to, and things like that.
4: Well, it's yeast, bacteria, flies, mammals, worms. It's everything but yeah. us. Mm-hmm. And, and then if you, Yeah, exactly. And if you want to study the species of Inbrist, i.e. the centenarians, well, that's great, but you don't get to do experiments. You have to make, you can, you know, you can, you know, do GWAS, you can look at, you know, clever epidemiologic inferences, but you never actually get to do an experiment. So you have to be able to combine these imperfect pieces of information and that's the art of moving forward. So, um, so yeah, I just haven't, you know, I just I think this is generally a field where there is no good information, and as unfortunately arrogant as it sounds, I guess I decided if I devoted five years to my life to writing a book, I could add some value to that space.
1: Mm-hmm. So the the nutritional piece of what of what you tell your patients, and we've our audience, we we did a nutrition episode. It was it was really like the old tried and true stuff. It's talking about. Sort of, you know, eating less processed foods, more vegetables, fruits. Can you talk about like what? What do you think is important as far as nutrition goes? And there, we had a lot of follow up questions. Like, what about fasting? Can you define some of these terms? There's time restricted feeding. There's intermittent fasting. Is that stuff important? Do we have any like where's the evidence lie there as far as outcome measures go? Like, is is it ready for prime time? Should people be doing that? So
4: um, we have again we have a framework for all of these things. So our framework around nutrition revolves around six states of nutrition. So we call them boxes one through six. So on the left-hand side of the page, if you were drawing this, you'd have a box around something called the standard American diet, which is basically death in a package. <laughs> and um, the, the first and second and third goal of longevity with respect to nutrition is just escaping the gravitational pull of the standard American diet. So the standard American diet is what it is because the default food environment will suck you into consuming it. I don't need to explain what it is because you know what it is. But how do you get out of it? Well, our belief is there are two first planets that are closest to it. Boxes 2 and 3. One of those is time restricted feeding where you don't limit what you eat, you just limit when you eat. In fact, you don't even really limit how much you eat. So you just narr- you know create a narrower and narrower window around your feeding time um, without much attention to how much or what you're specifically eating. And in animal models, that is unambiguously a very clear strategy for, uh, for benefit inclusive of longevity. However, in humans, it's just too soon to make that leap of faith. Um, the data in mice, for example, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with these data. Um, you know, you take a mouse and you let it only eat, eight hours a day, and I'm talking ad libitum eating of pure garbage, even if it consumes the same quantity that it would have consumed if given 16 or 24 hours of ad libitum access to the same garbage, it can't gain weight. It's actually impossible for that mouse to gain weight or become metabolically ill, which is probably more important. So you develop this longevity phenotype, but of course, 16 hours of fasting for a mouse, I mean, that's, Probably a week or more of fasting for a human—it's just so metabolically different. I see. So we do have to be a little bit careful. And so my view is that time-restricted feeding probably is not a longevity pillar in and of itself, but it is um, the thin end of the wedge. It's the it's the gateway drug to the more serious applications. Also, I think there are benefits that come from it. It's certainly a certain a lot a lot of people uh, experience weight loss, improved gut health. Um, you know, just changes in their immune system and things like that. Anecdotally, we've even seen patients who are statin intolerant become more statin tolerant and things like that. Um, but again, these things have to be studied. So I think at this point, it's safe to say that a lot of that is speculation. Mm-hmm. Um, but But certainly unambiguously, people tend to feel better when they learn that you don't actually need an IV drip of food to be alive.
1: (laughs) From like 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. when you go to- Yeah,
4: yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) The second thing that really becomes a first foray away from the standard American diet, so what we call box three, is dietary restriction. And this is the one that unfortunately gets all of the attention, and it's the one that I like talking about the least. So this is the reason I'm a shepherd, and a race car driver. It's because if I ever have to go to a party and talk about nutrition, I mean, I, I could lose my mind um, because I just can't deal with the religiosity that comes around this topic, right? Oh, my God, is a vegan diet better than a paleo diet or a low-carb diet? What about a low-fat <laughs> diet? But what about the Mediterranean diet? no, no, no. I mean, the reality of it is all of these things have so much in common that people fail to appreciate, which is they are all removing something or some things that are toxic from the standard American diet. Now, they certainly have differences. You know, a vegan diet and a paleo diet on the surface look as different as is humanly possible. But you know, they also have a ton in common, right? Both of these diets are absolutely loaded, if they're done correctly, with vegetables, with monounsaturated fats with nuts, with a bunch of high quality foods. And the differences may be less important than the similarities. And they also may come down to more specific issues around people. So this idea that there could be one right diet is to me, just so nonsensical. If you truly have a sort of understanding of biology, um, my view is, you know, Your carbohydrate tolerance is going to play a large role in which of those diets is going to be best for you. And we determine that by our patients all wear continuous glucose monitors, or most of them do. I'm wearing one right now. So every minute of every day, I know my glucose level. And we set very clear metrics for that. We need an average glucose to be below 100 milligrams per deciliter, standard deviation of glucose to be below 15 milligrams per deciliter. And we want zero excursions over 140 milligrams per deciliter. So we're we're really militant about glucose. And some people can achieve that only if they're on a carbohydrate-restricted diet. Other people can achieve that on a vegan diet if that's their preference. So again, I don't particularly give a damn what diet you're on. I care about what the outputs are of that diet. And if a person has an ethical or moral consideration about one way or another, or just has a particular fancy for eating one way or the other, that's great. Let's figure out a way to make that diet efficacious for them and effective, meaning it works and it's easy to be compliant within the confines of our physiologic parameters. So we don't have to really get into the religion of it.
1: Yeah.
2: From what does there that translate to Oh, sorry. for oh, interrupting. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, just as a, as a, just a practicing general internist who would just sort of like to coach patients on sort of healthier choices, like it's, it, who probably, I don't know that they're going to have the resources to be able to sort of do that. And this seems incredibly patient specific. Are there sort of, is there a broad brush that you can, you can paint this with? I guess listening to you well, talk, it yeah, sounds kind of like I- not, but.
4: No, know I think there are, I think there are some general principles, which is there are some people who can tolerate an endless diet of crap and they seem largely immune to it, but that's a very small fraction of the population. In my experience, that's five to 10% of people have the ability to sort of get away with doing anything for most people, especially as they age, there's really no benefit to refined carbohydrates and added sugars in the diet. I mean, simply none. So, um, you would consider any amount of added sugar, sucrose or high fructose corn syrup, and refined carbohydrates to be an absolute toxin that is to be used very sparingly. Uh, the second thing is there's no benefit to alcohol in the diet, which is funny because I just watched you take a sip of a beer. <laughs> it's that's actually nice. not
1: alcoholic beer for <laughs> what it's worth. <laughs> uh, no, I'm just
4: totally, um, so so you know, alcohol is just a toxin, and I'm not saying there's no benefits to it. Certainly, it you know can if it can you know I have patients who. Came to me drinking 60 drinks uh, a week. Imagine someone having 60 alcoholic beverages a week. Um, I know that you might think, well, that guy's clearly an alcoholic. I actually don't think he was an alcoholic at all. I mean, he's just a wine collector who absolutely loved his alcohol. Well, we got him down to 14 drinks a week now. And, you know, this is a guy whose liver function tests went from being five times normal to they're now in the 20s. Um, Now, he's never going to stop drinking 14 drinks a week. And luckily he can handle it because I'll tell you what, a lot of patients can't handle that. So part of it is understanding the specific toxicity of the patients. I think the other thing is when it comes to fatty acids, the, the two most important things are probably going to be monounsaturated fats. That's the fats you get in olive oil, macadamia nuts, avocado, and then the um, EPA and DHA levels. I mean, I really think that the biggest deficiency we have relative to our ancestors who were near water is we're, 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 pretty deficient in EPA and DHA, probably by a, um, a factor of 10 um, or certainly a factor of five. So those I think are just great general principles for people um, that become less about the specifics. And truthfully, I enjoy that type of interaction more. I think it is more productive to speak in terms of those things because nothing I said shoehorns you into a particular religion. I mean, sorry, diet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So it's very helpful. Thank you. It it sounds like the broad strokes were, you know, the the time restricted feeding just it just kind of gets the person the signal that you don't have to be eating all day and you can do that. They're going to eat high quality foods. Try to avoid, like you said, refined carbohydrates, added sugar. Um, you you mentioned some of the other nutrients that they should go for. And then what about the longer term fasting, like m- more than two days at a time? How often are you having people do that, and does that depend on how healthy they are at baseline, or does everyone get similar regimen?
4: Yeah, so from, so if you're keeping track, we've got box one is the standard American diet, or SAD as it's aptly named. You've got <laughs> box two is time-restricted feeding. Box three is dietary restriction. Boxes four and five, which are further off to the right, meaning you have to go further outside the gravitational pull of the SAD, are periodic fasting. So periodic fasting box four is calorie restricted or reduced calorie fasting. And then box five is water only fasting. And you do these periodically. So we describe this as this is getting way more complicated than you want. But we have this thing called a function of X, Y, and Z. X is the amount of caloric restriction in the periodic fast. Y is the duration and Z is the repetitive frequency of it. So Peter Atia exists in a 100% comma seven comma 90 regime, which means I do water only fasting. It's 100% caloric restricted. I go seven days at a time every 90 days. So
1: oh my once gosh. a quarter,
4: <laughs> I'm actually on, uh, I'm on day five right now of a water only fast.
1: Okay. So from what I know from listening to you, you must feel decent. Like the, the day, day five is one of the good days, right? Isn't it? You're over the hump. Like you've yeah, I heard you say the I, first it's few days different. are terrible.
4: Yeah. It's always different. But, but for this fast five, day, five feels great. I mean, I did two workouts today. <laughs> um, I feel, I feel totally great.
1: And you didn't pass out. Okay. <laughs>
4: So, and then of course you can do, and we know patients going to start doing that, right? I mean, a lot of patients, when they hear me say that, they they freak out and they think, oh my God, he's going to make, no, no. Uh, You know, the calorie restricted fasting, um, would say maybe be a 50% or a 70% reduction in baseline calories. Uh, maybe you do five days once a month of something like that. Um, there's a very popular version of this called a fast mimicking diet that a guy named Walter Longo, um, has proposed. Um, where they do five days of about 750 calories per day quarterly. Right. Um, so so there are lots of variations of that. And that then gets sprinkled in periodically as you go back to some toggling between box two and three. So you go box four, five, toggle back to box two, three. And that's really where we want our patients living.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. it's a, It sounds, I mean, it's it's a lot of sacrifice and a lot of major changes from like you said the gravitational pull of the sad the yeah it, it it's tough it's it's tough for people to uh stomach sorry for the pun yeah. um, so that
0: acronym's already taken though
1: so <laughs> <laughs> it's great to have you here Stuart. um <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh quality Peter, I wanted to time check with you because I know we're we're running near time, and I mean, there's so much, uh, so much that we still want to ask you about. But
4: well, I want to say one thing about your patience. Yeah, the the patience you give this. You know, I think one thing that's important for anybody listening to this to understand is genetics play a really big role in longevity, but not till you reach about the eighth decade of life. So when you, I forget their names, but whatever the guy was.
1: Yeah. He sounded like
4: Bob and Lisa. You'd think listening to that, that Bob has horrible genetics and Lisa has great genetics and Lisa's going to outlive him by a country mile. And probabilistically she will, but that's not necessarily true. Now it does sound like Lisa has acquired those very, very rare centenarian genes and those tend to matter. So genes become incredibly predictive of longevity once you reach the ninth and 10th decade of life. But until age 70 or so, genes play virtually no role in longevity. I was very surprised to learn this during the, res- during the research mm. from my book. And therefore, Bob isn't hosed. You know, just because <laughs> his family all succumbed to type 2 diabetes and fatty liver disease and every other condition that goes along with it in their 50s and 60s, you know, it's really important for Bob to understand that is not his fate. He may be more genetically predisposed to those things. But he can absolutely bend the arc of those things. Now, he might never live to 100. And that's why, you know, I don't have any centenarian genes. I mean, heart disease runs rampant in my family. Um, But I am still incredibly optimistic that the approach I've taken for the last decade and will continue to take for the rest of my life is going to give me a much better than fighting chance at outliving my genes by a decade or so. It won't get me to 100 necessarily, um, but it's going to give me Both a longer life and, arguably, more importantly, a higher quality of life. So I would mostly just make sure Bob knows this is not a fait accompli. Mm -hmm. He can do that. You know, he can bend this arc.
1: Right. So you'll you'll be eighty or ninety lifting a a heavy suitcase into the overhead compartment, and then you'll then you'll die in your sleep. It's a it's a beautiful end. Um <laughs> yeah. Um I don't know if we have time to get into like metformin or rapamycin any of those these these kind of like you know the 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 medication supplement piece of things. Uh I'll I'll leave that to you Peter cuz we we uh Yeah,
4: let's let we could we could go through them kind of quickly. I mean, there's not there's there's so much to say. I don't know where to start. I mean, yeah. we we have all these internal white papers we write for our patients and I think the metformin white papers I don't even know how long it is now. It's so ridiculously long. Um, I'll I'll, I'll say this. My take on metformin has changed dramatically over the past year. So I think there have been a number of studies along with my own personal observations, experimenting with myself and patients that lead me to believe that metformin is probably still a wonderful agent for the insulin resistant patient, the patient with type two diabetes. I think it is a suboptimal and probably harmful tool in the insulin sensitive, highly metabolically tuned patient. I think it is actually blunting the benefits of exercise. Uh, there was actually a paper that came out last week, the master's study, which looked, it was a very well done study, actually, uh, It was 14 or 16 weeks of hypertrophic training amongst, uh, folks aged about 65, two groups, about 45 people per group. Um, they were on an appropriate dose of metformin. You know, when you read these studies, you always have to make sure they're on clinically relevant doses of the drug. Um, and there was a significant reduction in muscle mass and muscle density in the group taking metformin. And this, you know, we have seen hints of this in other studies. So, you know, I took metformin for probably eight years and I stopped it. I, the reason I stopped it was not because of this trial. I stopped it long before this trial, but I stopped it on the basis of what I was seeing in terms of my mitochondrial efficiency. Uh, doing this um, very particular type of lactate-based training. Huh.
0: What about what about SGLT two inhibitors? Any data on that? Yeah, I think
4: the SGLT two inhibitors are a really promising class of drug, and I, um, you know, I, I think they're actually a far better alternative for people yeah. than metformin who are looking for a little bit of alpha on the glucose side. I, I was initially very, you know, sort of hesitant about them based on perhaps a overly cautious concern of increased bladder cancer, UTIs, things like that. But as you guys probably know better than me, uh-huh. I mean, the data hasn't really borne that out. And no. um, I think the data on cardiovascular disease with SGLT2 inhibitors is, is particularly interesting. Again, we have to caveat this with the following. Most of the data we have on this are in metabolically unwell people. Yeah. Right. And right. so we got fooled a little bit by metformin because it was so hands down a slam dunk in those patients that i assumed it would just be less of a slam dunk in the metabolically healthy i never assumed it would provide the same measure of benefit that it did in a diabetic um so i'd still love to see more data on the sglt2 inhibitors but um to put it this way in the appendix of my book i'm only going to comment on what i believe are the 20 most relevant molecules out there drugs supplements or hormones and both metformin and sglt2 inhibitors get a you know a section
0: Yeah. One of the things I'd love to see is a trial that looks at SGLT2 inhibitors with patients that just have essential hypertension, no other comorbid conditions to look at uh, some of those endpoints that you're kind of uh, alluding to.
4: You know what else I'd like to see is that same trial done with a third arm using allopurinol. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Lower uric acid and see what happens to blood pressure.
1: Stuart,
2: are you stunned? You've stunned Stuart.
0: (laughs) 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 I'm not. No, I'm going through my head. I'm I'm going through a sequence to see if we'd be able to do that on a couple of trials that we have underway right now. And it might. I don't know. It's There's a very interesting paper about.
4: by Rick Johnson in the New England Journal of Medicine that looks at all of the evidence supporting the use of allopurinol to lower uric acid to actually improve metabolism. Uh, by metabolism, I mean more broadly like metabolic function, inclusive of of blood pressure. So, yeah, I think uric acid is one of the most underappreciated bad guys in the system. I mean, I think you know it gets a lot of attention because of gout, but when you look at you know uric acid crystallization within atherosclerotic plaque the endothelial impacts of uric acid and of course the impact on blood pressure i think uric acids are a really bad actor and i think you know we as docs need to be paying much more closely uh, our attention to it
0: it's it's only been recently that we've at least as a as a group uh, restarted checking uric acid levels in the appropriate patient population we stopped doing that for a while based on some data that suggests that didn't really help endpoints but i don't know I, i'm starting I to find a lot of matter uh, you know asymptomatic the, elevated yeah
4: yeah i, I mean t- i i really think five is about the magic number and again that's that's quote unquote expert opinion or whatever but um that's my reading of the data is that you know we talk we typically say less than seven is normal but i i manage patients to a uric acid below five hmm.
1: Well, Peter, I, I definitely want to be respectful of your time and give you a chance to to give any take home points. And then we'll, after that, we'll give you a chance to plug anything else, uh, any specific shows that you wanted to, or other resources that you wanted to point the audience to. If you want to give them some take home points about how, about light, uh, health span, lifespan, what we've been talking about.
3: Well,
4: I mean, I can't resist one take home point, which we haven't really talked about any of the emotional stuff, but I. You know, one of, the, one of my absolute favorite talks is the commencement speech given by David Foster Wallace in 2005 at Kenyon College titled, This is Water. And even though that has nothing to do with what we've spoken about today, it's a very important part of our philosophy around longevity. So I would encourage anybody who's listening to this who hasn't already committed it to memory, meaning if you've heard it, that's not sufficient. If you've committed it to memory, you get a pass. But <laughs> I'd go to YouTube, I'd search David Foster Wallace, this is water. And I would spend the next 22 to 24 minutes listening to that. And I would revisit that every couple of weeks because I, I just think it's one of the most powerful descriptions of, um, of reframing, um, and mindfulness that I've ever seen. And it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's both a very sad and a very beautiful talk. And that's, that's probably the last thing I'd leave people with on this journey of longevity. Um, as far as stuff, I'd love to plug, there is something I'd love to plug. Actually, we have a doctor's directory on our site. So I get asked all the time, Hey, Peter, love the way you think about medicine. Um, do you know, a doctor in fill in the blank city who thinks the same way and my answer has always been gee I wish but I just don't know so this year we created a doctor's directory it has a very long you know intake form that the doctors have to fill out because it really gets into these questions like what is your philosophy of primary prevention what you know what literature do you read what conferences do you go to how do you stay abreast in this what's your philosophy on cancer screening all of these things and there are no right or wrong answers here but the idea is to create a very nuanced directory that will allow patients who are looking for doctors to identify people not just by geography but more importantly by philosophy so in as much as there are any doctors listening to this i would absolutely encourage them to go to our site peter atia md.com so it's just my name obviously last name a t t i a md.com and on there you'll see doctor directory and they you know again it's a bit of an investment in time it probably takes 20 minutes to fill this out correctly but um we are going to be launching the directory to our you know like to the public then in the new year and i think we'll have hit a critical mass by then where it really becomes a valuable tool to start pairing doctors with with patients so that's that's something. And if people are interested in the stuff I've talked about, you know, I would encourage them to sign up for our newsletter. Every Sunday I put out about a thousand to two thousand word newsletter. Um, we've got, I don't know, well over a hundred thousand people at this point that have signed up for it and probably get more positive feedback on that than almost anything else we do. Um, and of course we have a, a podcast that is also just, you know, been so much fun to be able to do what you guys are doing, to be on the other end of it. I, I like doing the interviewing. I don't like being interviewed.
1: Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> no, I'm sorry.
4: Um, but, to, you know, to walk around and get to interview the smartest people in the world on all the topics that touch longevity and health has been pure bliss for me. So, um, you know, if people haven't checked it out and they're interested in the topic, I'd encourage them to check out The Drive. And uh, I, that'll be it for my shameless
0: plugging at this point.
1: Okay. Fantastic. Thank you. I can't thank you enough. <laughs>
0: has has anyone ever said that you, I'm sorry. Thank you too. <laughs> <laughs> has, has anyone ever said that you sound like Sam Harris uh when you're recording? No,
4: like, not at it, all. I mean Sam is kinda, one of my best friends. I've never been I've never been told that that's the highest compliment because it, Sam is the perfect speaker. He has not a single gratuitous word, not a single unnecessary pause. He's
0: a machine. I yes. I, I I love listening to him. He's yeah. he's very uh, eloquent. Loqu- I, I believe. Loquacious.
1: Peter, didn't you have an episode with Sam? So Peter, Stuart, yes. you can listen to them talk to each other and decide how much they sound alike.
0: <laughs> I, I imagine when they're side by side, it's kind of like you'll you know, see the contrast. Exactly. You'll definitely see the contrast. <laughs> exactly.
3: I think Stuart just almost gave you a compliment.
0: <laughs> <laughs> almost. Oh, I,
4: I I took that to be the highest compliment. That's 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 a uh, that's a mic drop compliment right
1: there. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll we'll fade it out with that. Thank you.
2: This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. (laughs) Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox.
0: That's right, Paul, because we're committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge, and to, to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes, or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this show, Elena Gibson, and to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew on Facebook, uh, and uh, apparently at at Watto's insistence thanking myself for the music which sounds very strange Yay. until next time I've been Dr. <laughs> Stuart Kent Brigham
1: <laughs> I love the music Stuart I, everyone loves the it music is good. I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. Elena,
3: oh. <laughs> <Or> Elena. <laughs> I am Elena Gibson
2: <laughs> Outstanding work and I remain <laughs> Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams thank you and goodbye
0: You know why the nutritionist thought that she would live forever? <laughs> nope. Well, because she administered longevity. It's better than longevity. What? Uh... Long- <laughs> longevity? Two feeds? Jevity.
3: Oh, jevity.
0: Longevity's a tube feed.
3: Yeah, I got it.
0: Yeah. See yeah. if I said long osmolite it wouldn't be as funny. <laughs>
1: You can tell the best jokes when they're followed by a 10 second pause, and then the,
2: <laughs> and then the need to explain them. I'm just stunned to silence.
3: <laughs> I was waiting for like more, but
2: <laughs> no,
0: that was it. It was long enough. <laughs>